You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. The sixth annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland interdisciplinary conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Demetra Kutla from Aristotle University. Her paper was entitled, It Lacketh Only Inhabitants, Manurance and Policy, Agrarian Capitalism and Social Control, in Sir Thomas Smith's A Letter Sent by I.B. Gentleman. Hello everyone, thank you for coming. I would have to explain a little bit more about agrarian capitalism because I don't know how many of you come from a Marxist background, probably no one, so bear with me. The first wave of English colonialism should be examined within the wider context of early modern state centralization and the birth of capitalism. Sir Thomas Smith's letter was not only the first, but also the most eloquent and widely imitated instance of colonial propaganda. As I will argue in my paper, Smith's adaptation of the Roman model of colonies to the context of 1570s Ireland demonstrates his awareness of a strong link between a commercial agrarian economy and the solidification of a centralizing absolute state. The first form of capitalism, according to Marx, is agrarian capitalism, which developed in England during the late 16th century in response to the feudal crisis of the 14th and 15th centuries. The convergence of certain conditions unique to England allowed for the gradual transition from feudalism to capitalism, and three are of particular significance. First, land tenure in England after the Norman Conquest was unlike any system in Europe, as the entirety of English land had been parceled out to feudal lords and belonged ultimately to the crown. Secondly, Henry's reformation and the dissolution of the monasteries contributed to the pressing problem of overpopulation and particularly in the upper classes, as the law of primogeniture dictated that the eldest son inherited the family estate and hence the youngest sons could no longer join the church. In addition, large large numbers of tenants who held church lands in feudal tenure had their lands expropriated, finding themselves without means of subsistence. And finally, land enclosures on a mass scale linked to the booming wool trade transformed radically the English countryside and led to the impoverishment of the now landless peasantry. Marx in the Capital argues that the catalyst for the transition to capitalism is the expropriation of the peasantry from the land in 16th century century England, because this resulted in the formation of a new class, the landless proletarians who resorted to selling their labor in the free market. In Marx's own words, the process, therefore, that clears the way for the capitalist system can be none other than the process which takes away from the laborer the possession of his means of production. A process that transforms on the one hand the social means of subsistence and of production into capital and on the other the immediate producers into wage laborers. The expropriation of the agricultural producer of the peasant from the soil is the basis of this whole process. The second novel element found in early modern England is the fundamental change in the nature of property ownership. 
feudal tenure slowly eroded, and the customary rights of peasants over the land were gradually replaced by common law, which solidified the concept of absolute ownership of land in favor, of course, of the feudal landowners. This shift from customary to common law was simultaneously a centripetal force that signaled the bureaucratic concentration of power in an absolutist centralized state. Indeed, the defense of property rights required the institution of a centralized set of legal codes backed by effective means of coercion. The expropriation of peasants then in 16th century England created the two fundamental preconditions for agrarian capitalism. First, we have the creation of a class of landless wage laborers, and second, the commodification of the land itself, which is transformed from a means of subsistence to capital, what Marx called la terre capital. The result is the characteristic three-tiered structure of English agrarian capitalism, with its tillers of the soil as wage laborers employed by the capitalist farmer, who in turn paid the landowner for the land he exploited. There is, however, one crucial clarification necessary at this point. Capitalism at the time was an emergent economic system, and thus there was no immediate transition from feudalism. Instead, for the centuries that the two economic systems coexisted, and roughly that is from the 15th century until well after the revolution in England in the 17th century, we observe an alteration of the terms on which land was held, and not a major redistribution of land from one class to another. As such, there were many cases when members of the old feudal nobility adopted what turned out to be capitalist practices to secure their position in the changing economic and social environment. Therefore, it was quite common to find feudal lords championing a capitalist development in an attempt to safeguard their power and wealth. The simultaneous development of capitalism and centralizing absolutist states should be viewed as no mere coincidence. The emergent economic system could not take root in the fragmentary and decentralized feudal kingdoms. Capitalism requires a central legal and taxation system, state-sanctioned violence to defend property rights, and the wide array of state-directed techniques that permit the circulation of commodities and capital, as well as the discipline of the laboring classes. All of the above are elements associated with the solidifying of the absolute state in early modern Europe, and more generally, the birth of modernity. Indeed, as Foucault states in Discipline and Punish, modernity requires the synchronization of the control of capital and people. And as he further argues, the two processes, the accumulation of men and the accumulation of capital, cannot be separated. We explain what agrarian capitalism is, and we argue that absolutely centralized states provided the favorable condition for its development. Let us now move on to the textual evidence of Smith's letter. As I will argue, Smith explains that his proposal for the arts plantation will result in two things. First, efficiency, by which he means achieving the maximum profit from the agrarian economy of the plantation. And secondly, discipline, which refers to the subjugation of the Irish as well as the safeguarding of the English planter's civility against the threat of degeneracy from immersion in the Gaelic culture. Smith's proposal for the colonization of the arts was part of a general policy advocated first by Sir Henry Sidney, who suggested the establishment of privately financed colonies in Ulster as a means against the threat of the rebellion Shane O'Neill in the 1560s. 
The idea was that the English-populated plantations would relieve the crown from the financial burden of supporting troops deployed against rebellious Irish lords. In 1571, when Sidney resigned from his post as Lord Deputy and returned to England, the Privy Council, where both he and Smith were members, formalized this policy. In November of the same year, the Crown granted to Sir Thomas Smith and his son territories around the Ards to obtain, possess, or inhabit against the Irish before March 1579. The phrasing made it clear that the native population would be forcefully dispossessed. Naturally, that caused the opposition of the Lord Deputy of the time, Sir William Fitzwilliam, who feared that the proposed colony would ignite another rebellion in Ulster. The letter was published in 1572, the first example of printed colonial propaganda, and aimed to attract investors and adventurers for the project, and particularly called for the participation of the youngest sons of the gentry. As was the case at the time, Ireland is described as part of the English Kingdom, a relation that Smith, among others, argues was established with the Anglo-Norman invasion of the 12th century. As a result, the general aim for Smith is that of reform and not conquest, as the latter would befit a foreign country. And what does the reform of a corrupt and troublesome province entail, according to Smith? The answer is the establishment of Roman-style colonies, which will result in the political incorporation into the English polity and the financial exploitation by the English colonists. Smith and his son would assume the role of the Roman deductores coloniarum, leaders of men and distributors of land sent to inhabit and till waste and desolate places, that place being Ireland. The Irish will lose whatever political sovereignty they have, English common law will replace Brehon law, and the Celtic economic system will make way for English commercial and agriculture. In the words of the anonymous speaker of the letter, who has just described the current state of Ireland, All these things when my friend being then in Ireland had informed himself of by diligent inquisition, he felt to consider what way were fittest for our time to reform the same. And if it were reformed, I mean the whole country replenished with Englishmen. What profit that could be to the estate of England had since his return told me diverse times that he thought Ireland once inhabited with Englishmen and polished with English laws would be as great commodity to the prince as the realm of England. The yearly rent and charges saved that is now laid out to maintain a garrison therein. For there cannot be, saith he, a more fertile soil throughout the world for that climate than it is, a more pleasant, healthful, full of springs, rivers, great fresh lakes, fish and fowl, and of most commodious herbers. England giveth nothing save fine wool that will not be had also most abundantly there. It lacketh only inhabitants, manurance, and policy." And how does Smith propose to ensure the political and economic dependence of Ireland? The answer comes again from his humanist intellectual background and the value this ascribed to the classical Roman precedent. A network of 45 settlements inhabited by soldier farmers, the Roman colony, who would be responsible for the defense of the plantation, as well as its prosperity, their double role augmenting their attachment to the land. And to the end, the soldiers should be the more vigilant. I am minded to lay all the very frontier land divided by proportion to the strengths where the garrisons lie, so that every soldier shall put his share towards the sowing and manuring thereof, and receive his part of the corn and other profit that is to be gathered thereon, which shall come to him beside his maintenance from the country. This for his own gain's sake, which lieth in most danger of all, will make him have better eye to his charge and be the more jealous of the enemy. 
Smith, despite his classical humanist training, can be decidedly pragmatic at times. Indeed, the weight of his argument does not lie in what he calls the godly and commendable act of inhabiting and reforming the barbarous nation of Ireland. Instead, he recognizes that men are more moved by peculiar gain than of respect they have for common profit, a rather Machiavellian remark, and accordingly focuses on the fertility of the Irish soil, the commodities it has to offer, and the potential for profit awaiting the English adventurers. Let us therefore use the persuasions which Moses used to Israel. They will serve fitly in this place, and tell them that they shall go to possess a land that floweth with milk and honey, a fertile soil truly if there be any in Europe, whether it be manure to corn or left to grass. There is timber, stone, plaster, and state commodities for building everywhere abundant, a country full of springs, rivers, and lakes both small and great, full of excellent fish and fowl. The allocation of land is meticulously calculated and according to the position of the men in the plantation. Footmen will receive a plowland each and horsemen too, which has to be maintained to be ready at all times for the defense of the whole country. The allocated lands will be a combination of arable land and pasture, ideal for the practice of English agricultural improvements and the combination of tillage and cattle rearing. The benefits of a plantation operating under an agrarian capitalist economy are not only financial, as Smith recognizes. The effect of this economic system on the wider social context is significant, as it both requires and generates general discipline and stability. To be more specific, Smith praises the practice of tillage for two inextricably linked reasons. First, a commercial agrarian economy provides a life of stability and civility, and secondly, it produces a surplus in production which can bring great profit by being sold to the market. As we can see in the letter, my counsel shall be that every month since their land is delivered, such as is arable, should continue the same under tillage and receive his rent in corn, which stealing of their land that it be so done is also provided for in the said instructions, the said instructions being the crown grant. Because it settleth the occupier, and what with tending his fallow, riptide, seed time, and thrashing, it bindeth always the occupier to the land, and is a continual occupation of a great number of persons, a helper and a maintainer of civility, in my opinion. And yet there is another way more advantageous, the speaker adds, than the sale of corn in Ireland, that will be acclaimed therewith. If at the beginning, before our part be thoroughly peopled, we fall to turning all the land as a forest said to tilling, not being able to spend it. Therefore, is it necessary, and I am fully persuaded that the Queen's Majesty, furthering the inhabiting and civility of the North, which increaseth more by keeping men occupied in tillage than by idle following of herds, as the Tartarians and Arabians and Irishmen do, will give full liberty for the transportation of corn out of the said countries. The stable life of the husbandman, as Smith and his contemporaries had monthly believed, was the pinnacle of civility and the polar opposite of the lawlessness of barbaric nomadic societies among which the Irish were placed. Smith had such strongly held convictions on the superiority of the culture associated with the commercial agrarian economy that he believed the Irish would inevitably prefer this over their own societal organization, which he viewed as flawed, unjust, and corrupt. The Irish church will be drawn, as the letter claims, to the English plantations, where they will come and offer to live under us and to farm our grounds, 
grateful for their liberation from the oppressive Irish customs. Smith apparently believed that the Irish would happily choose a life of servitude and dismiss their allegiances and culture. For the Churl of Ireland is a very simple and toilsome man, desiring nothing but that he may not be eaten out with cess, coin, nor livery. How say you now, the speaker asks, have I not set forth to you another utopia? The context of Smith's utopia must be a centralized absolutist state, which will provide the necessary structures and conditions for the, flourish for the flourishing of a commercial agrarian economy. As the speaker says, and as for the present necessity and lack of many commodities of the country which are in England everywhere, if you mark that have been heard of or said in describing it, you cannot say but the only default thereof is the uncivility of the inhabitants and lack of good orders, which as soon as he shall have amended by bringing this his attempt to good end, and that it may be replenished with buildings, civil inhabitants, and traffic with good law, justice, and good order, what shall it that it be not also as pleasant and profitable as any part of England? In conclusion, Smith's proposal for Roman-style agricultural plantations in Ireland would be seen for decades as the singularly most effective solution for the rebellious territories, as well as the personal enrichment of the participating investors and planters. The colony in the arts, though, was an abject failure, as well as, all, as were all similar projects until the Ulster plantation under James I. This history of successive failures made one thing very clear to the English. No plantations could survive outside the frame of a centralized, coercive, absolute state, isolated and immersed in an economic and social system that was hostile to an agrarian capitalist economy. In the following decades, the forced incorporation of the Gaelic lordships into the English state, the other political dependence of Ireland and the imposition of a central legal system were recognized as the necessary precondition for the successful exploitation of Ireland. Ireland should be wiped clean of all the obstacles its culture and economy pose to the English model of civility and economic dependent. It should, by force, become a clean slate, a tabula rasa that lacked only inhabitants, manurans, and policy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.